This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. We've got a blockbuster story to talk about today in Cuyahoga County government based on some public records that reporter Corey Schaefer got hold of. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. Happy Veterans Day, all. Happy, Happy Veterans, Veterans Day. Day. And thank you to all mm-hmm. who served. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's get started. Did Bill Mason... While communicating closely with Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish before becoming Budish's chief of staff, threatened County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley a few years ago to drop an investigation of Budish or face consequences. Layla, this is a big deal. This could force him into resignation in his chief of staff role. Let's talk about what the news is. Let's talk about how we got it. Let's talk about what it all means. Reporter Corey Schaefer learned of this through documents released by the Ohio Attorney General's office. According to these records, this incident happened in January of 2019, in, in the period when when Budish was searching for a new chief of staff, and it also was under investigation. Bill Mason paid an unexpected visit to his old friends of the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. Mason, of course, was the prosecutor between 1999 and 2012, and he goes way back with prosecutor Mike O'Malley, who served as Mason's first assistant prosecutor. During that visit, he ran into Paul Soucy, one of the assistant prosecutors who handles white-collar crime. And according to these records, Mason told Susie that if O'Malley didn't drop the investigation of Budish, he would face opposition in the next election. The comment was so alarming that Susie immediately cut off the conversation and then reported it up his chain of command and to the prosecutor's office investigator and to two FBI agents. The group held a meeting with Mason, who then apologized for the comment and for his attempt to interfere, according to the documents. Uh, Days later, on January 28th, O'Malley then recused his office from the investigation, citing a conflict of interest in being required to defend the county against lawsuits involving the jail while prosecuting county officials for decisions made in the jail. And and Ohio Attorney General Dave Dave Yost's office uh, took over the investigation. And, you know, lo and behold, we find out now that contemporaneously to his visit to the prosecutor's office, um, Mason and Budish were having private communications about mysterious matters that might or might not have been the question of whether Mason would serve as Budish's next chief of staff. Because in June of that year, Budish did announce that Mason would fill that position. So this is a bombshell. I mean, yowza. Well, and let me point out, when, when Mason, Bill Mason, when he was county prosecutor, was a major political animal. We did a big project laying out how he had seated every city government he could in the county with people in his office. He got him to run for office or got him appointed to city councils. And he was a, a political kingmaker on the west side. Everybody talked about the Mason machine. So when he came in to this job, that was a question. Are you coming in here to play politics? And it was absolutely not. The county was in dire shape because 
Armin Budish is a terrible manager, very incompetent. We've chronicled it repeatedly. And Bill Mason was known as a guy who ran a pretty tight ship as a manager. And he said, that's what I'm here for. No, no politics. I'm here to run the ship. Well, it turns out that was a lie. I mean, he was politicking from the very start, months before he got the job. And what really was distressing was the response to this yesterday was, well, that was a joke that just went badly. Right. You, you can't make that joke. You're, if, and the former prosecutor knows it. The words cannot issue from your mouth, drop this investigation or else. That, that, there's nothing funny about that. There's no way you can shrug that off. And the way that was interpreted by Paul Soucy, a experienced prosecutor, was it's a threat. It's interesting that Michael Malley was not in the office because he and Mason are very tight. Like you said, he was Mason's number two for a long time. But and then O'Malley apologized to Susie. You don't apologize for a joke, right? You only apologize when there is a serious threat to what's gone on. Mason went in and shook down the prosecutor's office to stop the criminal investigation of Budish, just like Budish went into Metro Health and shook down Akram Boutros, the CEO, to fire Gary Brack after Gary Brack made comments about the bad situation in the county jail. County just or the. The, he just got a, uh, yeah, the county just settled with Brack for $99,000 because of that. This is bad news. So, Layla, what happens? I mean, it, this seems to me to demand that Mason has to go. He, you can't be chief of staff if you've gone into the prosecutor's office to threaten them with pol- political recriminations if they don't drop a criminal investigation. I know. That's that a very, very good point. You know, interestingly, Mike O'Malley is kind of also giving Mason some cover here, though, by also saying, you know, we've been friends for 40 years. Of course, he wouldn't have threatened me. That's, you know, he, he's, he's buying into that. But, you know, Paul Soucy is a longtime part of that office. He worked for Mason. He knows Mason. And... For him to immediately have thrown the flag on this, to immediately go and run it up the chain of command, to talk to FBI agents about the comment, he knows Mason. If he were joking, I think he would have he would have he would have recognized that. So this this is serious, and and no, it should not be brushed aside. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to be talking about this more in the coming days. Well. And what the state investigators didn't know when Susie came to them and said, hey, he showed up unannounced and made this comment was that they only learned this last fall when they finally got the the text messages out of the phone that they had subpoenaed was that Mason was talking to Budish at the same time. And this this wasn't just Mason showing up to his old office to check in. Mason was talking to Budish about what was going on with the criminal investigation because Budish had just been told he was a target of it. And right in that time goes over and said, drop this investigation or O'Malley will face a primary opponent. This is sinister. There's another element of the story, too, that's bad. The investigators showed up last fall to investigate or to interview the county's inspector general, who is an independent investigative arm of county government. When we reformed county government after the Demora Russo scandal, we created this office to separately investigate things. And Mason sent them a note saying, hey, 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 you came into our house and interviewed them without telling us ahead of time. We got to know when you're coming in to do that. Well, no, 
You don't. They're criminal investigators. Nobody knows that better than Mason. Criminal investigators don't need permission of the head of government to interview people. They can interview witnesses anytime they want. Right. So that's more bigfooting trying to block this investigation by Bill Mason. You know, people should know Bill Mason is making phone calls now to drum up support for Armin Budish's reelection run. Armin Budish is delusional, thinking that nobody rec- nobody is going to hold him accountable for the last eight years and the last four years and he's going to run again and mason is helping him again playing politics when he said he would not do so you know i also want to note one of the the more disturbing text exchanges between mason and budish was the one where he where where mason is advising him on how to handle the issue when the jail director got indicted and he tells him throw the indicted right under the the bus and you stand up and tell the public oh i'm a i'm aghast that this has happened and and you know i reassure you that that you know i mean the, he gave him a verbatim script to follow uh during that time to dodge all accountability of what was happening at the jail and uh you know that was all during that period where he they seemed to be in this courtship uh, where they were meeting for breakfast and discussing secret matters and and perhaps lining up uh, Bill Mason's future career with the county. Just just so many questions still to be answered. I hope we get to the bottom of it. Well, and Budish didn't follow that advice, and I suspect it's because his attorney, former U.S. attorney Steve Dettelbach, said if you do that, then Mills will testify against you. And so you got to be careful not to throw him under the bus because Mills never did really cooperate with investigators. I don't know if there's a federal investigation going on where that could change. This is shocking stuff. And and really, Bill Mason's toss-off statement saying, oh, this is preposterous. It's not preposterous. It's in the record. He did it. It's not a joke. You can't toss this off as a joke. And it'll be interesting to see whether the county council starts to raise some hell. He is this number two in the county. Number two guy in the county threatened the county prosecutor to get an investigation stopped of his boss. This is bad. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does a congressional district map proposed by Ohio House Democrats more closely match state voting trends than anything offered yet by Republicans? Lisa, I don't think this has a chance of passage, but we can dream, right? This would be fair. This would be what we need to move forward. So what is it? It, it, yeah, it it's it really is you know matches what the Constitution and voters demanded. This map was released uh, yesterday by uh, Richard Brown of Franklin County and Tavia Galonsky of Akron. It gives the GOP a nine to six majority. It eliminates three safe GOP districts. It it creates five competitive districts, three of which are GOP, two of which are Democrat. Um, it does not consider incumbency when drawing these lines. And of course, you know, this is a far cry from the GOP maps that give uh, the Republicans a 13 to 2 majority and cuts up some densely populated Democratic areas. So, yeah, and and this is pretty close to what the Senate Dems, their map was an 8 to 7. So it was an even more even handed. But yeah, you know, it does have to go through, you know, a majority, you know, Republican House. And so it doesn't have a chance of, but it just shows what can be done to match Ohio voter patterns, as this one seems to do. Yeah, I I would love to see the state 
adopt something that fits with the constitutional change that voters <laughs> approved. I mean, so far it's been an abject failure because the there's not anybody operating in true good faith on the Republican side. I, I like this one because it does generate discussion. I think anybody looking at this from an objective point of view would say, yeah, that that's the one that makes sense. That matches how Ohio votes. It's a good map and nothing that's come out previous has I, I it'll be interesting to see i i don't expect that the the rainbows and unicorns will show up to make it all work out but it's it's nice to dream once in a while that government could work as we intended to it's today in ohio who is on the transition team of cleveland mayor elect justin bibb layla it's good to see he's continuing his promise of change this is a very interesting group of people from all walks of life that's what you want to see as we plan the future government i agree so to be clear for listeners these aren't his cabinet members this is the team that will help determine his goals and all his priorities as he prepares to take office in january and the group consists of six co-chairs focused on 10 broad policy areas it's going to be managed by Bradford Davey, who's the Director of Regional Engagement at the Fund for Our Economic Future. He'll be assisted by Jessica Trivasano. She was one of the, the people who spearheaded the efforts to bring public comment to Cleveland City Council. And the six co-chairs of this transition team include Erica Anthony, um, the Executive Director of the Ohio Transformation Fund, Paul Clark, the former regional president of PNC Bank Cleveland, Richard Gibson, the pastor of Elizabeth Baptist Church, Phyllis Harris, the executive director of the LGBT Community Center of Greater Cleveland, Daryl McNair, president and CEO of MVP Plastics Corporation, and John Ryan, a former labor and nonprofit leader. So it's a blend of folks across many sectors. They're going to head up 10 committees that focus on economic development, education, environment, equity in action, health, modern city hall, which is a big bib, uh, you know, that priority, neighborhoods, open government, safety, and talent. We're obviously very eager to find out who they're going to tap to fill out Bibb's cabinet. But um, yeah, just exciting to to get the, the wheels in motion here. Couple things. The the Ryan has longtime ties to Sherrod Brown. So that's that's good because Sherrod Brown did endorse Justin and you know, he's the, the number one Democratic official in the state, so it's good to see that connection. And l- let's face it, Paul Clark is one of the the beloved leaders of Cleveland. He was the head of the PNC here for years and was involved in pretty much every good cause there was, was a very early Justin Bibb supporter and can rally people to join the Bibb administration. He brings a great deal of credibility. Uh, so it seems like Bibb is off to a good start. We'll have to see. Hopefully he'll be transparent about this process and we'll see a, a cabinet that really does reflect the needs of the community. But so far, he's living up to his promises. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does the anti-rioting bill moving through the Ohio legislature run afoul of the precious rights guaranteed to us in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution? Laura, this one is a little bit scary, isn't it? I I think so. I mean, I think the answer to that question is it depends on who you ask. But this is a bill that was voted out of the House Criminal Justice Committee on Wednesday morning by the majority Republicans. So it's going to the full House. It's basically a reaction to Black Lives Matter protests that morphed into riots last year and damaged the Ohio State House and other businesses. And obviously, we know what happened in Cleveland last May. 
Supporters say the bill is meant to protect law enforcement and business owners and is aimed only at violent rioters, not peaceful protesters. But this is a very, very broad bill. I want to list some of the things that's involved in it, but it is being called dangerous and an excessive curb on the First Amendment rights. All sorts of groups have come out as a coalition against it, warning that we're really just going to trample on people's rights to gather. So, so I can, yeah, you want me to run these down? Yeah, I mean, go through them. They're long. So there's, it creates some new felony offenses. Riot vandalism would prohibit recklessly causing physical harm while engaging in an aggravated riot or, or riot. And riot assault would ban recklessly causing physical harm during a riot. Uh, bias motivated intimidation would outlaw intimidation, harassment, or terrorizing of police and other first responders that results in death or serious bodily, bodily harm. But it's not just these felonies, which could be punishable by up to a year in prison. Uh, there's also no, new misdemeanors of harassment in a place of public accommodation, and that refers to harassing or intimidating another person in public space while they're engaging in um, a riot that could cover that could carry up to six months also expanding increasing expanding or increasing penalties for four existing offenses and it even addresses organizations it bans them from providing material support and resources used to plan prepare carry out or aid in conduct that constitutes a riot and when you think of all of these protests that they start peacefully and just end up in a riot because of some actions of a few and the reactions of the police, that's really scary. And while the organizer, the the proponents of the bill say, well, this doesn't affect anyone who just plans a peaceful protest, you don't know how this law can end up being used. Yeah, I, I we should point out, it's not just Black Lives Matter protests that broke down. There no. were also protests against masking and and the shutdown that broke down and had people breaking windows at the state house earlier, uh, people on on both sides of the spectrum have have misbehaved during protests. It, it, what it, what's scary about this is how it can be abused. I mean, this is the kind of thing where if somebody yells at a police officer the wrong way, they could be jailed. And you know, you're allowed to to yell at a police officer in a way that they don't like. You know, they're 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 not immune to people calling them out for what they think is bad behavior. Um, th- so I expect there'll be a challenge to this based on constitutional grounds, saying that people do have a right in this country to gather and to say things. This this opens the door for malicious prosecutions. Right, absolutely. And when you look at what happened in Cleveland last year, I, I, you wonder if there's should be a pushback on the other side of the issue about, you know, police overusing force and all of the people who were tear gassed and and shot pellets at. And, you know, they were just like walking. It was not just people riding at the police. I mean, there was bad behavior on both sides. And obviously, any kind of protest from any kind of part of the political spectrum, obviously, look what happened in in Washington. This bill has 16 co-sponsors, all of whom are Republican, has support from the Fraternity Order of Police, the Fire Chiefs Association, the Prosecutors Association. But there's more than 20 opponents testified against the bill in committee. And um, so I I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this. Right. The only accountability for the misbehavior of law enforcement during those riots is the civil courts. I mean, we had the guy in Cleveland who lost an eye. He was walking down the street and a law enforcement officer shot him with one of those non-lethal weapons took his eye out there was another guy who all he was doing was coming home and trying to go into his apartment building and they fired 
paint balls at them and things. So it's it's kind of our pepper balls. It's it's and there is nobody prosecuting them. There's nobody prosecuting those officers, at least as of now. They went after the people who misbehaved in the riot, but the officers got off criminally, and it's only the civil courts that have allowed anything to bring accountability. Right, even the report that the police department issued afterwards, down obviously it's the own poli- police department's report, but it downplayed all of that. Yeah, well, and that's one of the reasons we're going to have civilian control of the disciplinary process in Cleveland, I suspect, with what passed last week. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is a bill to let teachers carry guns in schools without peace officer training going to pass? Didn't the Ohio Supreme Court put a stop to this idea? Lisa, they still have to get the basic concealed carry permit, but as of now, Ohio law would require them to have much greater levels of training before they could bring a firearm into school buildings. What's going on here? Yes, House Bill 99 is poised for final vote in the House after committee approval earlier this week. House Bill 99 calls for 20 training hours, initial training hours for teachers who want to carry firearms, and then four hours of retraining uh, every year. Uh, The bill is kind of an answer to an Ohio Supreme Court ruling earlier this summer that says state law requires the same level of training as police, which is over 700 hours. Uh, The worry is here, I think, that And Michael Weinman, who's with the Fraternal Order of Police in Ohio, says this puts school board members in a position of setting training and qualification for teachers to carry firearms in their school districts. He's worried that private companies would come in, push their training, you know, without any parents or law enforcement input onto, you know, creating these rules. Interesting side note, the uh, sponsor of this bill is uh, 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 Thomas Hall, and his father was involved in a 2016 shooting at Madison Junior Senior High School in Butler County. There was a 14-year-old student who brought a gun in the school, but his father, Kent Hall, who is a uh, resource officer, chased the child outside and into the woods and probably, you know, prevented further damage. So, Honestly, this bill will probably pass. At least they're requiring some training, you know, on a par with what people go through for concealed carry in the state. It's better than no training at all. Yeah, and actually, it does seem like it was a pretty high bar for people to have it. I mean, there has been violence in schools. I I think most teachers don't want to have guns. I'm married to a teacher, and the last thing she'd want to do is carry a gun to school. But for somebody who did, to make them be trained as a law enforcement officer seemed more more than was necessary this seems like it's reducing it to almost nothing uh, and you're right it's going to pass so it doesn't really matter what any of us say on this podcast <laughs> I, can i jump in though I, i'm wondering though can districts ban their teachers from carrying a gun after this passes i mean or do they have to allow them to chew to make that choice good question that i don't know the answer question. to that I mean, I would like my district to ban it. I don't want teachers carrying guns. I mean, this sounds like it's going to be a disaster. It, this is the thing that, you know, cops always say when they're when they're approaching these situations, when there's an, you know, a, a shooter in a building, they have to know who the good guys are in the back. How do you know who you're dealing with everyone when everyone is dressed as a civilian and they're carrying guns? If you have multiple teachers carrying guns and there's a there's an active shooter in a building, you're going to have all these teachers running around the halls with their guns and cops trying to get the the situation under control disaster and quite I honestly I, I think I, but i but i do think look you got to you got to look at it on both sides there have been 
school shootings where lots of people have been killed, where if you'd had a teacher with a gun, with the training, a responsible person, they might have saved lives. And and it takes a while for police to get there. And I, I'm not, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a disaster. Does it set up a potential for, for some of what you're discussing? Yes, but it also sets up a potential for saving lives. And that, you know, I think time will tell which side we'll we'll see. Lisa? Yeah, I I worry about active shooter training. I mean, I think some of this training that House Bill 99 is proposing does have active shooter training, but quite honestly, an active shooter situation is is really best left to the experts. People can fall to friendly fire. The gun can be taken away from the person who's wielding it and used against them and others. So there's there's that to consider as well. Well, I'm going to play the contrarian on that. It takes a while for cops to get there. How many people could a bad person with weapons kill or injure while police are finding out this is going on? Time is important. And if you had one teacher with a gun that would at least scare the shooter into a more protective mode, you might save some lives. I, I, it, this is a tough one because the kids' lives are at stake. Um, and, you know, responsible behavior is what you're counting on here. Gun advocates say the people that get the, the firearms training and the licenses, they're the responsible ones. They're the ones that you want to have the guns in that kind of a situation. So we'll have to see. Good discussion. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What does our architecture critic Steve Litt think of the plans for the new Cleveland Police Headquarters planned on Opportunity Corridor? which finally opens tomorrow. Layla. <laughs> the, the new, this new headquarters, it's going to be $107 million, four stories, 187,000 square feet on Opportunity Quarter, as you said. The design just won early stage schematic approval Tuesday from the city's East Design Review Committee. So Steve Litt characterized it as an attempt to balance openness and transparency with expressions of action, strength, and justified force in the line of duty. That's apparently what they're trying to convey with this design. He said it's crisp and contemporary in style, but avoids the cartoonish classicism of the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Justice Center and the Cleveland FBI field office, which were both built in the last 20 years. He said those are very defensive looking structures that are set back from the street or, or you know, in the, the FBI office's case, it's surrounded by fencing. The, the office block of the new police headquarters will be covered in dark blue metal panels that, you know, invoke obviously the color we all associate with law enforcement. But Steve says the designers offset the potential gloominess of that design choice with plenty of glass facades, particularly on the ground floor, which includes a public meeting room. And the open area in front of the building will feature an event lawn, a community plaza, and a rain garden. And that'll just be much more attractive from the street than a parking lot right out in front, for example. The design review committee members had some concerns over the the aesthetic here. For example, they were they were concerned about the canopy on the building's main facade, and and also you know the the uh, the end of the building's west wing. Both of these features kind of terminate in this sharp angular shape that looks very aggressive, like like the blade of a cutting tool is how they described it, and. You know, the designer was like, oh, no, that was supposed to look welcoming. <laughs> so so Steve suggested that they consider heading back to the drawing board on those details. You know, in the end, Steve very rightfully points out that 
public perception of the police is, is a matter that ultimately depends on police community relations and that that stretches far beyond architecture. <laughs> so, um, but generally it sounded like Steve was signing off on the, on the overall concept and, and aesthetic of this, this new facility. I, I, I wish he would have looked at it uh, from the perspective of which would be better. Cause yeah, it's a, it's a interesting looking building for all the reasons he says, but it's in the middle of nowhere. And the alternative, as we discussed last week was the building that we currently inhabit that we're trying to sell <laughs> that at one point was going to be a police station. It would save, you know, taxpayers a boatload of money because it would have been much cheaper. But it would have been right in the middle of downtown. It would have been a meeting place that everybody could get to because there's ample parking. Whereas this is way out there, man. I mean, this is not the the something that's central. And wh- how do those things compare? Because uh, there's still time if the Bib administration comes in and says, man, we could save tens of millions of dollars by by switching back and then invest that in other capital projects would you get back to that well and and also the if you look at all the the renderings that steve posted they the building kind of looks very similar to our 1801 superior doesn't it yeah i mean it's basic shape and has the glass facades and i mean they could just there's so much potential for the building that we own that uh, could be transformed into something akin to what they're proposing here. Uh, so, Well, and I believe the obstacles that existed for them to walk away from our building don't exist as much now. Um, and I mean, look, it's not, it, it, we don't own our building. We're a tenant in our building. So there's no financial incentive for me to say this, but <laughs> I, it just seems like a downtown building that occupies an entire city block with ample parking for the public would be an easier thing for people to access than what they're building way out in the middle of nowhere. It's today in Ohio. What did $3.5 million pay for in renovations to Connor Palace with the work done just in time for the opening of the musical The Prom? Laura, I'm coming to you on this because you were down there, but you told me yesterday you didn't notice anything was different. (laughs) really didn't. I mean, I thought the bathrooms looked really nice, but as far as the theater, um, I didn't. And actually, they've replaced all 2,800 seats, which I guess I thought they were a little bit more comfortable than in the past, but I just thought it'd been a long time since I'd been in the theater. (laughs) But this is the biggest renovation in the history of the 99-year-old theater, aside from the original restoration of the grandeur in 1987-1988. So the whole point is just to kind of refresh the place, make it look brighter, make it more comfortable without challenging the integrity of the space. So, I mean, Joey Morona, who wrote the story and had, we have a great tour on our site, said, the best thing about the renovation is the upgrades blend so seamlessly with the original design of the theater, you probably won't notice the changes until you notice them. So it's not just me. That's by design. This took three months to complete. It was paid for with funds raised through the Playhouse Square, advancing the legacy campaign. And basically, it just makes things a little more comfortable for everyone. There are modern bathrooms with porcelain walls and mahogany doors on the stall. And then those 2,800 seats, plus new carpeting throughout. It's, it's very plush. All right. Very good. It's today in Ohio. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Tomorrow we'll be talking about another revelation that comes from the public records Corey Schaefer got that brings some of the past into the present. We'll understand something that was a bit of a mystery when it occurred. I'm being cryptic because we haven't published it yet. 
Thank you for everybody who listens to this podcast. 